chapter 63. Who is this coming from Edom in red-stained garments? Who is this from Basra arrayed in majesty, pressing forward in the strength of his power? It is I who am mighty to save, announcing righteousness. While on the subject of the coming of the Lord, in chapter 62, verse 11, where he comes to salvation, his salvation is for the elect, or for the righteous, or for those who repent, or for those who are holy, the holy ones and valiant ones who escape the destruction. But his coming also portends the destruction of the wicked and punishment for them. Edom, in chapter 63 here, in verse 1, is also mentioned in chapter 34. Chapter 34 it talks about the slaughter of the nations, like the slaughter of the beasts of Edom. The sword that drinks its fill in the heavens shall come down on Edom in judgment on the people I have sentenced to damnation, in chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord's rage is upon all nations, His fury upon all their hosts. He has doomed them, consigned them to the slaughter. The Lord has a sword that shall engorge with blood, and glut itself with fat, blood of lambs and he goats, a kidney fat of rams. For the Lord will hold a slaughter in Basra, an immense massacre in the land of Edom. For it is the Lord's day of vengeance, the year of retribution on behalf of Zion. That same idea is here. Look in chapter 63, verse 4, where it says, For I had resolved on a day of vengeance, and the year of my redeemed had come. It's the same day of vengeance that is mentioned in chapter 34, verse 8. It is the same day of vengeance that is mentioned in chapter 61, which is the part that Jesus didn't say in the synagogue, to herald the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So the coming of the Lord has a twofold aspect, salvation on the one hand for the elect or the righteous, for Zion, and vengeance upon the wicked, as signified by the red-stained garments. Because when you hold a slaughter, you're going to get blood splattered on you, and that slaughter is of the wicked. And that's part of the Lord's coming. Don't make any mistake. He's not just going to come and make everything rosy for everybody. He's going to demand justice for all the injustices that they have done. Who is this coming from Edom in red-stained garments? Edom, in chapter 34... Idumea, in the Latin, is there synonymous with those who sell their birthright for a mess of pottage, like Esau did, whose name is called Edom. Edom means red, going back to the red pottage, the lentil soup, or whatever it was that he ate when he was so hungry that Jacob had made. He had failed in the hunt, he had caught nothing, and Jacob offered him this mess of pottage, but wanted the birthright from him. Esau, in his weakness, agreed, and then later became angry when it actually happened. And in the book of Isaiah, Edom is like the term Babylon. It's a code name that covers, like Babylon does, the sinners and the wicked of the world, and the world at large. But in the specific sense, the specific sense of those who broke the covenant or who gave up their birthright or their heritage, their spiritual heritage, the blessings they could have had. These are covenant breakers, those who sell their birthright for a mess of pottage or something equivalent. And the Lord has come from there because he has just slaughtered them all. Actually, the king of Assyria does the slaughter. The Lord uses him as his instrument. Who is this coming from Edom in red-stained garments? Who is this from Baza, arrayed in majesty, pressing forward in the strength of his power? That's the Lord himself. That is his second coming. Remember his first coming? He himself was slain like a lamb. He went like a lamb to the slaughter. And you think that somebody could slaughter somebody else if he didn't know what it was all about? He himself was slaughtered like a lamb, unrighteously, unjustly. And now he has authority to slaughter them justly, righteously, 
because they have been oppressing his people and they have refused to repent. They have not cleaned up their act. Time has run out. It's time for the earth to change. It's time for the elect to be redeemed from this situation. It's a mercy to them to make an end of them because they just perpetuate this iniquity down the generations. And the rising generation has no hope being born into such a situation. They perpetuate it too. But the Lord makes an end of that whole sinful generation, like the time before the flood. It's a huge slaughter. Who is this coming from Edom in red stained garments? Who is this from Bosnia arrayed in majesty, pressing forward in the strength of his power? It is I who am mighty to save. Mighty to save those who repent. But those who don't repent, sorry. Announcing righteousness. The Lord announces righteousness. What does that mean? Well, he raises up his servant who personifies righteousness. The servant preaches what it means to be righteous. The servant renews the covenant of the Lord with his people. Spells out the terms of the covenant, which if you follow them and fulfill them, that constitutes righteousness. Then you're righteous by the Lord's standard. If you're righteous, then he'll save you. And he's mighty to save you. If you don't, he's under constraint not to save you. Simple as that. The Lord announces righteousness, meaning that he himself is witness and testimony to the legitimacy of the servant. Remember all those chapters in the 40s where it talks about the Lord as creator? And then right after it talks about the Lord as creator and what he's done to create the heavens and the earth and all their bodies and so forth, he says something about his servant. It is the creator God who legitimizes his servant. And so he does here. He attests to the legitimacy of the servant's mission. He does it over and over again because he has to, because the servant is meeting so much opposition. It implies between the lines that there are those who are saying the servant is not legit. He's just coming on his own bat. And the Lord says, no, I, the creator God, God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm the God who testifies of him. The same when Christ came, the Father testified of him, and the Holy Ghost testified of him. There were those who saw it and heard it, both by the still small voice and also by great calamities that came upon those who rejected Christ. The Romans' destruction of Jerusalem, for example. The mighty miracles that the Lord did attested to his divinity, being sent of God. And so the Lord sustains and supports his servant. We saw that in chapter 51. The Lord sustains him in the midst of adversity. The servant himself suffers horrendously. Plucking of the beard, smiting of the cheek. Chapter 50 says, I rebel not nor back away. I offered my back to smiters, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I hid not my face from insult and spitting. Because my Lord Jehovah helps me, I shall not be disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing I shall not be confounded. He who vindicates me is near. Who has a dispute with me? Let us confront one another. Who will bring charges against me? Let him confront me with them. See, my Lord Jehovah sustains me. Who then will incriminate me? Chapter 50, verses 5 through 9. Verse 2, Why are you clothed in red, your garments like those who tread grapes in the winepress? Alone I have trodden out a vatful of the nations. No one was with me. I trod them down in my anger. In my wrath I trampled them. Their life's blood splattered my garments, and I have stained my whole attire. He who paid for the sins of all mankind, who himself suffered the wrath, suffered the justice of God on behalf of all men, now also meets out justice, or he's in a position and qualified to meet out justice on those who don't repent, who don't come under the law of mercy. He whose clothes were made red when he sweated blood at every pore now has their blood splattered on his garments when he treads them down in his anger and in his wrath. But like I said, God is not vengeful himself. 
But he uses the king of Assyria to do that work of destruction, to destroy the wicked. Anciently, the flood came and destroyed the wicked of the world. In the book of Isaiah, the king of Assyria is likened to a new flood, as we saw in chapter 7 and 8, in chapter 28. And he personifies God's anger and wrath in chapter 10 and many other places. He is his anger. He is God's wrath. He personifies those attributes. So when he says, I trod them down in my anger, in my wrath I trample them, he's saying that he trod them down through the instrumentality of the king of Assyria, with his anger, or by his anger. The word in, in Hebrew, and by is the same word, or the same letter, really. It's one letter, be. I trod them down in my anger, or by my anger, or by my wrath I trampled them. And that word trample is a word link, as well as the word anger and wrath. They're all word links to the king of Assyria. Like chapter 14, verse 6 says, He struck down the nations in anger, who subdued peoples in his wrath by relentless oppression. Chapter 10 calls the king of Assyria the rod of his anger. He's a staff, my wrath in their hand. He is the wrath. And his job, he says, is to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil, to tread underfoot like mud in the streets. He's the one who tramples the Lord's people. He's the one who treads them down. It says, alone I have trodden out of that full. It also means that he paid the price for our salvation, for our spiritual salvation. He was alone in doing so, in working out the atonement, and now he has the authority to bring this kind of judgment upon the people. The wine press also is an allusion to the day of judgment. In chapter 27, it says, The Lord will thresh out his harvest from the torrent of the river to the streams of Egypt, but you shall be gleaned one by one. There, the day of judgment is likened to a harvest of the wicked, from which the righteous are saved. There's another place that mentions vintage. 24.13 So shall it happen in the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, when grapes are gleaned when the vintage is ended. And then it talks about those who survive the destruction, who are like the ones who are gleaned when the main vintage is over. For I had resolved on a day of vengeance, and the year of my redeemed had come. The twofold nature of the day of judgment, vengeance upon the wicked and redemption for the righteous. The one is momentary and the year is longer than a day, alluding to a prolonged period of redemption, the day of salvation, the year of salvation, or the millennium of the earth. Verse 5, I glanced around but none would lend help. I glared but no one would assist. So my own arm brought about salvation for me and my wrath it assisted me. It's something similar to what we just read a moment ago. Chapter 59, verse 15. When integrity is lacking, they who shun evil become a prey. The Lord saw that there was no justice and it displeased him. When he saw it, he wondered why there was no one, not one who would intervene. And so it is here in chapter 63, verse 5. When there is exceedingly great oppression in a society, like a Sodom and Gomorrah type of society, and someone's in trouble, people are afraid to help out because they too will become victims. If you see a guy with a gun or with a knife threatening someone or a guy lying in the street, what do you do? You walk by. Because if you help, you might get shot or you might get knifed. This is what happens in a Sodom type of society. The Lord is not pleased with that because it's a test. It's a test of your love of God and your fellow man or creature to help. And when no one lends help, then charity is lost. The covenant is broken. Here in chapter 63, verse 5, the Lord is putting himself in a situation where he's one of the ones being oppressed. And of course he was. He was betrayed by Caiaphas. 
he was uh, judged guilty and crucified, and nobody rescued him from that plight. But he's also saying that he puts himself in the position of anyone who suffers unjustly, any innocent victim to a crime, a robbery or something like that, or who's subject to violence by another. And nobody's there to lend a helping hand because they're all just concerned for themselves or they're all into their own thing or they don't have time to stop the car and lend help. Everybody's hedonistic. And he glares and looks around for help and nobody would even look at him. They'd just pass on by. In a situation like that, when things get that bad, just like a moment ago we were reading about the oppressive society where people are extorting and ripping each other off and manipulating injurious dealings. When things get that bad, the Lord intervenes and does something about it. He doesn't just let a society like that go on and on and on. He brings it to an end as he did the society of Sodom and Gomorrah. So my own arm brought about salvation for me, it says, and my wrath had assisted me. The arm signifies intervention. He's going to save the innocent victims out of it. When there is that much injustice, God is going to do something about it. My own arm brought about salvation for me because the arm there is the arm of righteousness, which prepares the way for salvation to come, the Lord himself. It's the mission of the Lord's servant, in other words, that's alluding to. The Lord's servant comes. He's one of the ways God intervenes by raising up his servant and sending him to set things right to restore justice among the nations. It says in chapter 42, where the Lord commissions him. He says, Him I have endowed with my spirit, he will dispense justice to the nations. Justice where there was no justice. He comes into a situation of no justice or injustice. And that enables those who repent, or those who renew their covenant allegiance with the Lord, that enables them to inherit salvation. On the other hand, those who reject the servant's mission become subject to the Lord's wrath. It says, so my own arm brought about salvation for me, and my wrath, it assisted me. Because my wrath, the king of Assyria, took care of the wicked. I trod the nations underfoot in my anger. I made them drunk by my rage when I cast their glory to the ground. All those nations who reject the servant's mission become subject to the anger and rage of the Lord, which is the king of Assyria. He is the anger, he is the rage. He's an angry person too. He's a wrathful and raging person. And when he comes along, you'll see that. There'll be huge speeches like those of Hitler in which he will rage and vent his anger and fury upon the covenant people of the Lord. But he's the one who takes care of the wicked. The Lord commissions him against them. He's the one who treads the nations underfoot or the wicked of the Lord's people underfoot as we just read a moment ago in chapter 10. He's the one who makes them drunk so they stagger around not knowing what hit them. When I cast their glory to the ground... This alludes to the reversal of their circumstances. Their glory is cast to the ground. And not just the nations at large, like here, I tried the nations underfoot, but also the Lord's covenant people. Their glory is cast to the ground in the same way, by the king of Assyria. Like in chapter 28, My Lord has in store one mighty and strong as a ravaging hailstorm sweeping down, or like an inundating deluge of mighty waters, he will hurl them to the ground by his hand. The proud garlands of the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden underfoot by this one mighty and strong, this king of Assyria, this overflooding scourge, this torrent, this new flood, this anger, this rage. Their glory is going to be cast to the ground, and the Lord's people are going to be lifted up from the ground, and the glory of the Lord will cover them. They're going to be glorified at the time when the others are humiliated. Those who have been humiliated unjustly are now going to be exalted. And when that happens, people praise God, those whom he saves and exalts, praise him and thank him. 
it says in verse 7, I will recount in praise, again, individualized, not everybody across the board, but individuals, I will recount in praise of the Lord, the Lord's loving favors, according to all that the Lord has done for us, according to the great kindness He has mercifully and most graciously rendered the house of Israel. He didn't have to do that. All we did was repent of our sins and try to do a little bit of good. But it was really Him. He lifted us up from the ground. He did these things for us who were unworthy. It's like a song of salvation or praise of God, like the earlier songs of salvation that we've seen. I will be counted praise of the Lord, the Lord's loving favors, according to all that the Lord has done for us, according to the great kindness He has mercifully and most graciously rendered the house of Israel. These terms, kindness and grace and mercy, are also synonyms of covenant, which allude to the fact that the Lord here is fulfilling His covenant or the terms of the covenant of His people. He's blessing them because they keep the covenant's terms. Verse 8, For He thought, Surely they are My people. That is, My covenant people. Covenant formula. The possessive. Sons who will not play false. Vassals. Those who covenant with their emperor or suzerain. And so He became their Savior. With all their troubles, he troubled himself, the angel of his presence delivering them. In his love and compassion, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. How did he become their savior? Why, he took their sins upon himself, as it says in chapter 53. With all their troubles, he troubled himself. He took their burdens upon him. Remember where it says, you have burdened me with your sins? He really did take that burden upon himself the angel of his presence delivering them. In the book of Isaiah, there are two who save. One saves spiritually, the other saves physically. One is the Lord himself, who redeems them spiritually, delivers them from their sins, and the other one delivers them temporally, like Moses delivered Israel from the Egyptians, from the bondage, from the Egyptian army, from Pharaoh's armies, from the armies of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. The angel of his presence went before the camp of Israel and led them and guided them. Here, the angel of his presence is another description of the Lord's servant. He is the one who delivers them. The term deliver there in chapter 63 verse 9 is a word link to chapter 19 where the Lord sends them a savior or deliverer who delivers them when they call upon him. When they cry out to the Lord because of the oppressors, he will send them a savior who will take up their cause and deliver them. Chapter 19 verse 20. The delivering, there is a word link to the servant or to that Savior, that temporal Savior. Not the Lord Himself, it's the angel of His presence. One on the seraph level of the spiritual ladder in the book of Isaiah. So that their salvation is twofold, has a spiritual aspect and a physical or temporal aspect. In the Hebrew prophets, they don't distinguish or they don't separate the two. If you qualify spiritually, you are physically delivered. In His love and compassion, those are also covenantal terms meaning covenant love, according to the terms of the covenant. He himself redeemed them. That's not the angel of his presence. That is his own personal redemption of his people from their sins. And you take the word redeemed all the way through the book of Isaiah, it links, by way of word links, to parts of Isaiah where the Lord himself does the redeeming. No one else can do that. Servant can't do it. Servant is himself dependent upon the Lord for that kind of redemption, redemption from sin, and from the effects of sin. He himself redeemed them, he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. We also see the angel of the Lord smiting the Assyrian host in the cross-reference there, chapter 37, verse 36. That's an example of what the angel of the presence of the Lord does, physically delivering them. 
Chapter 46, verses 3 through 4 is cross-referenced there. And it says, Hear me, O house of Jacob, all you remnant of the house of Israel, who have been a load on me since birth, borne up by me from the womb. Even to your old age I am present, till you turn gray, it is I who sustain you. It is I who made you and who bear you up, it is I who carry and rescue you. Verse 10, Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, till he became their enemy and himself fought against them. Of course, we've read all about people's rebellion against the Lord. That here is paralleled with them grieving His Holy Spirit. They may rebel, but the Spirit of the Lord will strive with them to try to get them back and to get them to repent. When they keep on rebelling, the Spirit is grieved and withdraws. And then God becomes their enemy instead of their helper. He Himself fights against them. In chapter 1, verses 2 and 24, that are cross-referenced there, the wicked people of God themselves become his enemies, and he becomes their enemy. They become subject to the king of Assyria also. His spirit ceases to strive with them and basically hands them over to the power of the king of Assyria. That's how he fights against them. And when he fights against them and his covenant curses come upon them, then what do they do? They begin to realize the enormity of their transgression. Like those people we read about a little while ago who said... Our transgressions before thee have multiplied, our sins testify against us, our offenses are evident, we perceive our iniquities, willfully denying the Lord, backing away from following our God, and so forth. And the redress backs away from them, and when it does, they turn back to God, hopefully. Not all of them do, but some do. And that's what happens here. Verse 11, Then his people recall the days of Moses of old. When? When they were in bondage, remember? To the Egyptians. They were slaves. They had brought that upon themselves, because that was a covenant curse. If they had not fallen away, they would never have come into bondage. Bondage is a covenant curse. When they become subject to covenant curses, that hopefully will bring them back to remembrance of God in the former time of blessing. Verse 11, Then his people recall the days of Moses of old. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea, the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put into him the Holy Spirit? who made his glorious arm proceed at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them, making an everlasting name for himself when he led them through the deep. Like the horse of the desert, they stumbled not. Like cattle descending the slopes of ravines, it was the Spirit of the Lord that guided them. So thou didst lead thy people, O Lord, acquiring illustrious renown. So they're beginning to talk to the Lord in their cursed condition. They're beginning to remember him, remember the miracles he did for their forefathers. And, of course, what does the Lord do? When they turn to him with all their hearts, what did he promise Moses? When they seek him with all their hearts, he will remember them and bring them back from their scattered condition. And he will repeat that miracle of the Exodus for them in the latter days. This becomes a type. This Exodus of old becomes a type for a latter-day Exodus, as in chapter 11 and many other places in Isaiah. Whenever a name like that is mentioned, Moses, it implies a type Moses set a precedent for, what? An exodus from bondage back to the promised land. And that's what's going to happen now. These people who have rebelled, some of them anyway, will repent, remember God, and he will bring them up in an exodus. Whereas he who brought them up out of the sea, the sea in Isaiah is a metaphor describing the king of Assyria. He's the sea and the river, the powers of chaos that can overwhelm the wicked. But if he brings them up out of the sea, it means that he delivers them from the power of the king of Assyria. Whereas he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock, the shepherd was Moses. 
chapter 40, verse 11, talks about that. Like a shepherd, he pastures his flock. The lambs he gathers up with his arm and carries in his bosom. The ewes that give milk, he leads gently along. In the Exodus, Moses leads the Exodus. The servant leads the Exodus. He is the shepherd spoken of. Those ideas are also in chapter 44, verses 27 and 28, where it says, Who says to the deep, become dry, I'm drying up your currents. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will do whatever I will. There's the political aspect of the servant, where he's described as a shepherd. It's a word link to the servant. Whereas he who put into him his Holy Spirit, well, we know that the servant is endowed by the Spirit of the Lord, we've seen that in several places, like Moses was, who made his glorious arm proceed at the right hand of Moses. Now the angel of the Lord's presence led the exodus out of Egypt and the wandering through the wilderness. Here it says that the arm of the Lord proceeded at the right hand of Moses. It's like saying Moses was helped by an angel of the Lord or by some power at Moses' right hand to help Moses lead Israel. And it implies, in fact, that this same angel may be this same servant or that this servant was that same angel who assisted in the Exodus anciently, who now comes and does these things in a mortal state, in his mortal condition. It also implies, again, intervention by the Lord. God intervened in his people's affairs to bring Israel out of Egypt. He sent Moses to them. God intervenes in the latter days to bring his people in an Exodus out of an oppressed condition, from exile among the nations of the world, not just one nation, not just Egypt. He brings them in an exodus from all nations. Arm and right hand are also there in parallel to indicate that they're one of the same thing. The arm of the Lord, the Lord's servant, is also the right hand of the Lord, which is the Lord's servant. Who divided the waters before them, making an everlasting name for himself, and he led them through the deep. That's the coming of Israel through the Red Sea. But in Isaiah, in the latter-day Exodus, they come not only through the waters, but also through the fire. Chapter 43 says, When you cross the waters, I will be with you. When you traverse the rivers, you shall not be overwhelmed. Though you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Its flame shall not consume you. This new Exodus, they will also walk through the waters. The waters will divide before them, wherever they come from, not just the Red Sea. But it will be more glorious than the ancient Exodus because it's a much larger Exodus. Many more people will be coming. They'll be coming from all over the world, and not just the waters are subject to them, but also the fire and other elements. Like the horse of the desert, they stumbled not. Like cattle descending the slopes of ravines. Here's another allegory using the imagery of animals to describe people. So it was the Spirit of the Lord that guided them. Because the Spirit of the Lord guides animals, guides them to water, and guides birds, and they all fly and fish. They're much more subject to guidance by the Spirit than we are. And you see it in their behavior, right? A flock of birds will suddenly all change direction at one time, or same with fish. What kind of intuitive sense causes them all to do the same thing at the same time? Some higher guidance, some higher power than just a bird. So thou didst lead thy people, O Lord, acquiring illustrious renown. Because when he led them out of Egypt in that wonderful exodus and divided the waters, he made a name for himself among all the nations that heard about it. So he's going to do again. His people remember those days. They want them back. They want the Lord to do for them what he did for their ancestors. Verse 15, O look down from heaven, from thy holy and glorious celestial abode, and behold, you're way up there, God, and we're way down here. 
we're pretty helpless. So you help us, would you? Because you have all this power. Look way down at us in our weakness. Where now are thy zeal and thy might, which you had then in the days of Moses? You were zealous for your people and you displayed your power to them? The yearnings of thy bosom and thy compassion are withheld from us. For them, but not for us. That's not fair, God. But, of course, it is fair. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's no respecter of persons. and not partial to anybody. If they will put themselves into the same condition by repenting, then he will do for them what he did for their ancestors. Or if there will be saviors like Moses come up and intercede with God on their behalf, he will do for them also what he did for their ancestors. Are these people saying the truth? The yearnings of thy bosom and thy compassion are withheld from us? They're a little bit like the people we saw earlier, you remember? They were a little bit into self-deception. They were blaming God for things that were not true. What does that show? So there's a little bit of lack of honesty. They're still not totally repentant, doesn't it? They haven't quite got it right. And so long as they don't, what happens? Nothing. So long as they're not being honest... It means they haven't fully repented. And if they haven't fully repented, God can't save them. So he waits a little longer till they see that they have more to repent of. Now also, the word zeal in the book of Isaiah is another metaphor describing the Lord's servant. They're really asking for the Lord's servant to come and save them, or for someone to come and save them, like the Lord's servant, or like Moses. Verse 16, Surely thou art our father, Though Abraham does not know us, or Israel recognizes, Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer from eternity is Thy name. This actually shows quite a bit about them, because these people are apparently not identified with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel is the name of Jacob. They may be the people who are identified with the mingled lineages of Israel, or Israelites mingled among the nations, or Gentiles. Those who are identified with the Gentiles. At any rate, they're in an alienated state. That is very obvious. But they're trying to renew their relationship with the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by claiming that he's their father. Of course, he is. He's the father of all humanity. But it's important for them to renew that relationship. Our Redeemer from eternity is thy name. Verse 17, Why, O Lord, hast thou made us stray from thy ways, hardening our hearts so that we do not fear thee? Is that really what the Lord does? He makes people stray from His ways and He hardens their hearts so they don't fear Him? No. So it only shows that they're halfway there, doesn't it? Again. They're recognizing that covenant curses have come upon them. Their plight is awful. They need to be delivered like the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. But they're not quite ready for deliverance yet because their repentance is not complete. There's still a little bit of self-deception there. They've been so used to meeting out oppression to others, like the extortion and the illicit transactions and the other forms of injustice and the murders, things we've been talking about, that their thinking is not yet straightened out. Their thinking is still warped. Relent for the sake of thy servants, the tribes that are thine inheritance. In fact, they're not even willing to go all the way in their repentance because they're calling upon the Lord to do for them for his servants' sake. In other words, they want proxies, like King Hezekiah. They want the prayers of Moses to be effectual for them. They want Hezekiah's prayers and intercession with God to be effectual for them. They're not willing to totally clean up their own act yet. But they may be in the way of doing so. 
Meanwhile, the threat to them is so grave that they want deliverance now. They don't want to wait. Save us now for your servant's sake. As we keep repenting, we'll become clean ourselves. Relent for the sake of thy servants, the tribes that are thine inheritance. The servants here are synonymous with the tribes that are thine inheritance. The servants are the tribes. This is the part that's similar to John the Revelator's description of the Lord's servants, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where Isaiah touches on that. And those servants, at least in Isaiah's theology, are proxies for the people of the order of King Hezekiah or Moses. The Lord is to relent, in this case, from meeting out covenant curses to deliver them from evil for the servant's sake, not for their own sake, but for his servant's sake. Because the servants are righteous and intercede with God on their behalf. And so the Lord listens to their prayers and relents and is merciful to his people. But a little while had thy people possessed the holy place, promised land, place of the sanctuary of the Lord, when our enemies trod down thy sanctuary. We have become as those whom thou hast never ruled and who have not been known by thy name. They were the covenant people, thy people, covenant formula. They did possess a promised land, a place of the Lord's sanctuary. They transgressed, they rebelled, They probably rejected the Lord's servant. The Assyrians or other enemies came in upon them and trod down the holy place, among other covenant curses. And eventually those people became as though they never were the covenant people of God, as though they never had been blessed of God, but cursed only. We have become as those whom thou hast never ruled, who have not been known by thy name, as if they had never taken his name upon themselves and become his covenant people. Here we have a group of people that are not experiencing the blessings. They're not the ones that are part of the Zion people. These are the people who are subjected to the enemies of God's people, the Assyrians. Some of them are undoubtedly destroyed this time, and others, if they repent quickly enough, might still make it, but not through direct divine intervention. They'll still have to suffer that time and go through all of the hardships of it. And hopefully by the end of that time, will be fully converted to the Lord again. They've hardened their hearts, they've strayed from His ways, they've become alienated, but they're on their way back. They're not there yet because they're still blaming the Lord for things that are not true, but they're getting there. Some of them are anyway. So there's hope for them. This is that middle category of the Lord's people, the ones that also survive into the millennium, but not under the protection of the cloud of glory. They don't die. 